Carrie Taylor and welcome to another episode of Squawk Fox TV and the Cash and Carry podcast. So look, over the last several months, our lives and behaviors have changed dramatically during this pandemic, and it's transformed our financial lives too, leaving many of us wondering how to save, spend, and invest in the future. So if you're feeling a little or a lot of financial anxiety, you're not alone and this show is for you. My next guest uses the power of optimism, the gift of humor, and the science of behavioral economics to help us improve our finances starting today. Dan Ariely is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He's a world-leading behavioral economist, a renowned TED speaker, a multiple New York Times bestselling author, and he's the Chief Behavioral Economist at Capital. So he's uniquely positioned to give us some behavioral insight on how to best manage our money during these challenging times. He's joining us from Israel. It's great to meet you, Dan. Same here. Lovely to be here. And it's a Friday night here. So I, I have a glass of wine. I don't know what, what you're drinking, but for me, it's, <laughs> it's evening. It's already okay. Oh, I, I approve. So I, I have um, a couple of your books here. Wow. Okay. <laughs> if, you, if you keep writing at this pace, I may need a bigger house. Ah, that's very sweet. Um, I've noticed you've done a lot of interviews while you're in Israel, and I've seen you do a lot of speeches as well. And you often explain why you have half a beard. Yes, that's a, that's a very good point. And, uh, and when I don't explain half a beard, uh, I know that people uh, wait to the point. Like, what's the point of this? Half a beard. When are we going to discover uh, what, what's, the, what's the point? So there's no point. And as you know, many years ago, I was badly burned. Uh, most of my body is covered with scars, my hands, uh, most of my body. Uh, I, was, uh, I was burning about 70% of my body. I spent almost three years in hospital. It was a very dark, difficult, complex period. But as a consequence, I have scars on the right side of my face. So it, I, it looks sort of symmetrical, but it's just because how the explosion uh, happened. But, but a few years ago, I uh, went on a hike for a month and I came, emerged like this with half a beard and I decided to accept myself. Uh, this time last year, I was um, in treatment for uh, breast cancer. So I went through chemotherapy. Mm. And at this time last year, I had shed my entire coat. So it was unpleasant having no hair on my head, but the worst was actually not having eyebrows or eyelashes because people found it difficult to communicate with you because you can't express yeah. yourself. I, I understand you know, how people relate. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a challenge. Yeah, but you're, you're, back, you're back with eyebrows. Uh, so I hope your health is doing well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm doing well. Okay, let's, let's talk a bit about behavioral economics. Let's, happier things. Let's talk about <laughs> behavioral economics. <laughs> Enough. Um, okay, so let's improve our financial decisions. And I think it would help to know if we're going to talk about how behavioral economics plays into this, what the difference between behavioral economics is and how is, how is it different from standard economics? So, so there's lots of ways to think about it, uh, but I, I think about it in two ways. Uh, the first one is that standard economics assumes lots of things. We assume that people are rational, we assume people can think about everything, people can know anything, we have infinite computational power, we can think into the future, we have no emotions, all kinds of assumptions. Uh, behavioral economics doesn't assume anything. It just says, let's test things, right? And, and the second thing is that it's... Um, more of a science than religion in, in, in the following sense that, you know, the standard science, it doesn't start with assumptions. Economics does. But if you took, take about biology, there's no assumptions. All creatures are rational. 
We're just saying we're open to data. And from that perspective, behavioral economics is just open to data. Like, it's perfectly fine if people behave rationally. It's perfectly fine if they're not. We have no horse in the game, but we just want, want what people, to see what people do. And why is that important? It's important because uh, social science is not just what's called descriptive. It's not just describing reality. It's also prescriptive. It's also tell us how to build the world. So imagine that you want to build, to give instructions of how to get people not to, uh, to, to wear masks and wash their hands and keep social distancing. Um, a standard economist will say it's a very, very simple thing to do. Just tell people what to do, give them the probability, and they'll do it. Um, a social scientist or behavioral economist will say not so easy. One of the challenges is that every time you see a person who's not wearing a mask, that person is much more salient to you than the people who are wearing a mask. And you have a, you have a hard time going to somebody and say, could you please put a mask on? Uh, I, was, I was in Eastern Europe uh, at the beginning of the year and uh, somebody picked me up from the airport. Picked me up, I sit next to him and I put my seatbelt on and he says, what do, you, what do you put your seatbelt on? Don't you trust me? And first of all, I don't trust him, but um, I didn't know him. But, but it was interesting how he took that as a sign of offense. Now, imagine that you're walking in the street and you tell to somebody, um, could you please put the mask on? It's, very, it, it, it's a very difficult thing, right? It's as if you're telling somebody, I think you're contaminated in, in some way. So once you understand all these nuances, uh, you're much, much better able to design something better. So, stand economics makes some very simplified assumptions. Uh, behavior economics doesn't make any assumption. We're trying to learn what people actually do. And then the second thing is when we're trying to build something in the world, uh, I prefer the behavior economics perspective because now you're informed. Like you're building a bridge, you're building a hospital, you're building a school, you're building instructions, whatever it is that you're building, you take human nature into account, you know, just making assumptions about it. I love it. I love behavioral science because, well, specifically with money, because so many people struggle with money and behavioral science explains that the struggle is real, right? Like we make these mistakes for some very explainable reasons and yes. standard economics kind of ignores it. So if I give someone a, um, a budget spreadsheet or a compound interest calculator and assume they've got it all figured out, they'll master their money, you know, they don't. There's so much more involved. There's so much more psychology involved. And it just, I That's feel, right. I feel it's like. Actually, uh, yeah, it's it actually helps. worse. It's actually worse because in standard economics, you don't have to give anybody a compound calculator. They're supposed to just intuit that because, you know, that's how interest compounds and you're supposed to be able to figure it out. So you're supposed to say, oh, I have this glass of wine here. The opportunity cost with compound interest over the next 20 years is so and so. Let me, let me not get this uh, wine. But of course, it's, um, it's impossible and we don't think like this. And therefore, we often get into lots of trouble um, financially. And, you know, the, the other thing that happened is that in the financial world, like in nature, um, the orange tree is not your enemy. It's just an orange tree. Uh, but, but in the market, um, we have competition. Uh, so, for example, uh, most banks uh, want us to overspend, right? Mm -hmm. They make money, the most amount of money they make over people who are revolving their credit. So their interest is to create lots of people who revolve their credit, still pay it, but revolve their credit and pay 
high interest rate and, and they can do things, right? They are an interested party and they can do things to make it more difficult for us to understand what the consequences of our actions are mm -hmm. and therefore take advantage of us. So it's not only that we're naturally not inclined to deal with money. Most of the institutions out there are not designed to help us. They are designed to take advantage of us. It's a competitive system. Yes, for sure. I mean, and a lot of, a lot of the old school writing with money also, you know, tells people, use your willpower, use self-control, you'll save more money. And that advice doesn't really help, you know, even when yeah. you have logical tools, the willpower thing just fails every time. The, the willpower is very tough, right? If the instruction is use your willpower all the time, that's not a recipe for help, right? It's if exhausting. I say to, it's exhausting, that's right. And, and, and you don't have to fail a lot to fail, right? So, so imagine that uh, we, we filled your home with the donuts and the cookies and all kinds of things and, and chocolate and great smells. Right. Um, will you fail 100% of the time? Of course not. But will you fail from time to time? Absolutely. And, and what you're saying about exhaustion is also true, is we call this depleting. As you, re, as you react to temptation, like you see a donut and you say no, and you see a cookie and you say no, it eats at your willpower. And at some point you get exhausted and you're more likely to fail. So, so we have an environment that is set up to tempt us. And we have to figure out how do we fight that. And um, this, the answer of just learn how to control yourself is not enough. I, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about the Dalai Lama. Right? Here's, here's a guy who is clearly practicing, you know, eight hours a day for self-control. And um, I, I met him once and I wanted to do some experiments with his monks. Uh, he was not interested. But, but you know, this, this would have been great because, you know, the normal people like, like you and me, uh, we haven't really practiced that much self-control. These guys have practiced a lot, right? And, and presumably we can test, are they more successful? And in what way and in what tasks and so on. But, but the idea of just, just resist it is not, is not a good instruction. A much better instruction is eliminate temptation. Mm -hmm. uh, so think about something like automatic deductions. If your paycheck goes into your bank account and it stays in your checking account, until you decide to put into savings, there'll not be much savings. If we take a part of it and we automatically move it into a savings account, savings will accumulate without your actions. Basically, if we wait for people to take the right action all the time, there'll be too many times that we'll fail. So we want to take things, automated things. And, and by the way, what's wonderful about money is that money is digital now. Right, so imagine we were stuck in a world in which we only had physical paper money. People got their paycheck in cash and we had to deal with everything. We couldn't automate anything. The fact that money moved into digital um, provide both opportunities and danger. And what's the danger? The danger is things like uh, uh, the Amazon shop, where you go into a store, you take things off the shelf, and then they charge you a month later. You don't even see the money. Right? And under those conditions, people don't think about money and they overspend. Uh, on the other hand, we could do things that get you to think better about money. So as long as we had physical money, we were very limited. 
Now that we have electronic money, we can decide what we want to do. We can decide to create payment methods that get people to think more deeply or think less deeply. Now, I'm personally hoping that we'll get people to think more deeply and make better decisions. And well, I, I have a question about the, the cashless world. Um, I've ventured out of my house in the last little while because retailers are now open. And I've, I've noticed something um, new is that a lot of them have signs that say, cash not accepted. We no longer accept cash. They want contactless payments. So credit card tap, mobile wallets. And I know you've written a lot about how using cash can reduce spending because it's painful, right? Exactly. It doesn't feel good to hand over money. Well, why is cash so painful? And what could it mean yeah. if we're moving into a cashless world now? Yeah. So, so basically the story with cash is uh, what is called the pain of paying. And of course, it's not physical pain, but it's mental pain. And kind of just as a, as a, a thought exercise, you can say, how would it feel like if, if you went to a restaurant and every time you took a bite, they charged you a dollar? Uh, imagine a steak is $25 on average. It's 25 bites. You could say, what would happen if every time you took a bite, somebody would you know, make a note and then charge you a dollar for it? It would be very painful because the thing is that when we think about the money, our enjoyment goes down, right? And that's the pain of paying. It's about thinking about money. And what credit cards do is they get us not to think about money because we don't feel that we're paying. We're swiping. We don't see the money leaving. Uh, you know, most of us, when we get our credit card statement at the end of the month, we're surprised by the amount. It's because we haven't really thought about all the, all the things that go into it. They don't really register mm -hmm. uh, that much. So the pain of paying is really thinking about the opportunity cost. Right? So if I, if I gave you uh, an amount of money, let's say $100 a day to spend, you would see what's going on. You would see that if you buy huge lunch, you might not have money for rent or something like that if you got money every, every day for just a day. If you get a credit card, part of the way it works is we don't think about how much we're spending. We just spend, spend, spend. We don't see the opportunity cost. We don't see what we're giving up in the process. So there's no question in my mind that uh, moving to more digital is going to get people to spend more. Now, there is a solution for that. Yes. And, and the, solution, the solution is the prepaid debit, right? So it's true that credit card is, is a mechanism to get people to spend more, but prepaid debit is better. And you mentioned capital uh, earlier. And mm -hmm. uh, capital, they have a version of a prepaid debit card. Um, uh, so I have one of those. Uh, and it loads money onto my account. And then I see it going down. And right, the moment you see something going down, zero is very clear. Like if, if, <laughs> if, if the amount is going up, like how much is it going and what's the end? It's not clear. If it's going down, the zero is very, very clear. Uh, the second thing we did was we found out that it's much better to have this budget load weekly rather than monthly. Why? Uh, in my personal case, I use it for discretionary spending. That's what it's supposed to be used for. And I load $2,000 a month, 
but it turns out that if you load $2,000 a month and you check it, you say, oh my goodness, I'm rich. In the beginning, it looks like I have so much money for discretionary spending. People spend it too fast. If instead you break it into $500 a week, that's much better. Mm-hmm. And there's another trick. Do you load, do you load the, the card on Monday or on Friday? Oh, you want me to guess? Yes. I'm going to say Monday. You're right. Because the weekend I'd want to spend. That's right. That's right. So if you, if you load on the weekend, on Friday, uh, you spend a lot, right? You have more time on the weekend. Uh, you, have, you have more things to do. Like, actually, you know, people, people think about, there's a question in retirement, like, how much money do you need in retirement? And people say, oh, 70% of my, my assets. But the reality is that we, we did this exercise. We didn't ask people how much money do you need in retirement. Uh, we asked people, tell us how you want to live at retirement. Mm. And then we calculate how much money they need and they need about 120%. Why? Because retirement is like the weekend. Actually, you know, working is very cheap. Somebody occupies you for eight hours a day and give you free coffee. It's an amazing deal. If, if you didn't have the time, you have to find expensive things. I mean, not very expensive, but you know, you have to fill your time with something. So, so if it's on Friday, then it's very, very expensive. Uh, people, people spend way too much. If it's on Monday, you get to savor and wait for the weekend. And then if you mess the weekend, the weekend is easy to scale up and down. So, so if you think about this, this version of a, of a, of a debit card, you can say how instead of working like a credit card, you're getting to overspend, it gets you to set your goals and live in a way that is closer to your goal and actually better than cash, right? Because like imagine that you did a substitute, you had $500 in cash in an envelope, right? And that's, that's a good solution because you would see it going down, but you wouldn't know how much you had. You would have to recount it all the time. So there, there are benefits of electronic money. I don't think it's always bad, but we have to decide, is the technology going to fit with human nature and help, or is it going to be antagonistic and try to take advantage? I'm a bit of a pessimist. I feel like, uh, I feel like a lot of these new technologies are taking advantage. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. So first of all, you're absolutely right. Um, there's lots of attempts to for people to take advantage. Um, but I don't think, I, I'm not of a, as a pessimist uh, as you are, because I, I, I think a lot of it, and you know, this is kind of an individual perspective, I think a lot of it comes from stupidity rather than evil. Okay. Um, and I think that a lot of, even credit card companies haven't thought very carefully about what it is that they're doing. So, so I think, yes, you know, there's some wishful thinking and some not paying attention. I'll tell you another story, a very different uh, era. A few years ago, a couple of entrepreneurs uh, came to me and they said that they want to do a digital insurance company. I said, great. And they asked me if I want to join them. And I said, absolutely not. I I don't see a reason uh, to join the insurance company. Mm -hmm. And then they said, uh, what could we do to make it interesting for you? My answer was, uh, what if it was an insurance company with no conflicts of interest? Okay, so Dan is going to be modest about this insurance company. It's called Lemonade. And with Lemonade, he's completely made over and changed the adversary relationship with buying insurance and making claims. Lemonade is the world's first peer-to-peer insurance carrier. 
so funds contributed by members are shared communally. Now, last summer, Lemonade went public and grew beyond a small pop stand with more than 140% gain. I'll link to Lemonade in the show notes below. Regular insurance company, you have the consumers, you have the insurance company, and consumers pay, 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 pay. At some point, something bad happens, they want the insurance company to pay them back. And what does the insurance company want to do? Not to pay back. It's very simple, right? It's a zero-sum game. There's a pie. The insurance company holds all the pie, and every money, they, every dollar they give away back, they have less. Mm -hmm. It's a conflict of interest. And consumers know that the insurance company doesn't want to pay them back. So they exaggerate. You lost a cheap watch, you say it was an expensive watch. And the insurance company know that people exaggerate, so they make it difficult and complex and painful. It's a strange dance. It's a strange dance, and it's, a, it's not the way you would design it. Now, I don't think it's evil. I think it was just designed in a non-thoughtful way. So mm -hmm. I said, what if we, what if we <clears throat> decided to fix it? So I said, how? I said, what if instead of a two-party game, we made a three-party game? You have consumers, you have the insurance company, and you have a charity. And when people join this insurance company, they pick the charity they love the most in the whole wide world. So maybe it's the World Wildlife Fund. Mm -hmm. And they pay, and the insurance company takes a fixed amount, let's say 20%. Their management is 20% of that, they put aside. And they have a pool for all the people who join under the World Wildlife Fund. And, and they pay people from the pool. And at the end of the year, there's money in the pool. The money doesn't go to the insurance company. It mm. goes to the charity. Now, what it does is it, it makes the insurance company have no conflicts of interest. We always make 20%. There are more claims, there are less claims. It, we are indifferent to that. Uh, it's all the, the way the money is divided between consumers and the, and the non-for-profits. And if consumers cheat us, who are they cheating? not-for-profit because we always take 20 percent um so so we we um we started this company uh, five uh, about five years ago and and lots of good things happened and in particular about two weeks after we started yeah, we got the first interesting email from somebody and he said uh, i insured my apartment with you uh, i reported a theft my laptop was stolen you paid me thank you um but I just realized that nobody stole my, my laptop. I just misplaced it. Mm. And he said, how do I return the money? Now, on that day, I called all my friends in all kinds of big insurance companies. And I asked them, you know, how does the form look like when people pay you back? Guess what? They don't have a form. <laughs> it's never right? happened. Right. It doesn't happen. They don't need it. And, and we get these things happening from time to time. Um, by the way, this company is, is, is doing well. Uh, last week, we had an IPO. I saw uh, Lemonade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're very happy uh, with that. And, and, and part of it is, you know, I'm happy insurance is an important product and so on. But part of it is, is, is your pessimism, right? Partly, for me, Lemonade is so important because it shows that you can be on consumer side, right? This, this notion of an antagonistic financial service companies that are trying to squeeze everything out of consumers rather than provide services that are helpful, important, and so on, and make, um, I mean, everybody should make a decent living, yeah, but there's no reason to get into um, uh, conflicts of interest or abusive relationships. So I'm, I'm hopeful. And, and Lemonade for me is a good example of how 
you, you basically say, let's change rules of the game. Let's, and next, like if you ask me what's my wish list, yes. is I want a bank. I want a bank that does the same thing. But I want a bank that says, we're on your side as a consumer. Right. Uh, and we're not going to be in a conflict of interest and we're only going to serve you and we'll charge you for it, which is fine, but we'll not be in a conflict of interest. Right. Well, why don't I just skip ahead and ask you about Capital Now? Because I'm fascinated. I, I checked it out. So you're the chief behavioral economist at Capital. Capital is a banking and budgeting app available in the United States. And it uses behavioral finance principles to help make people better, to help people make better decisions with money and help improve their financial habits. I took a look. The UI is, is un, very not bank-like. It's, it's, yeah. it's fun to look at. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, 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 designers, the designers are great, I have to say. They're really wonderful. And, and there's like a magic to design that science hasn't figured out. I can't tell you what's a good design, but when you see it, you, you recognize it. Right. And, and then there's lots of um, elements from this. So we talked already about the cards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, preloaded once a week on Monday and, and so on. Uh, but there's lots of other features. Um, uh, one, one important feature is realizing that the money you have in your checking account is not always available, is not the money available to be spent. So, so think about two people as an example. Uh, both of them get paid on the first of the month. Uh, one of them has their mortgage check coming out on the second, and one of them on the 19th. Uh, what's the difference in how they perceive their finances? The guy that has their mortgage coming on the 19th for 17 days thinks that they have money. But they don't. The money is being spoken for, but it just sits in your checking account. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, the checking account is like the, the garbage can of, of personal finance. It's, you know, you have, you have money there. Some of it is for mortgage. Some of it is to pay your insurance in six months. Some of it is to pay your kids' tuition. Some of it is for summer. Like, it's really not a good system. Like, you wouldn't design a checking account. Like, you wouldn't go to a company and go to the CFO and say, can you make this investment? And he would say, let me look at how much money I have in checking. Money has been labeled. In fact, the moment your salary hits, almost all of it has been labeled. Some of it more than once. But you just don't remember the labels. So one of the things that capital does is to be more specific about those labels. Is, and we is, use goals. Is this like mental accounting? That's right. That's right. But it's not mental. It, we create a real representation for it, right? That says... This is your money for your summer vacation, and this is your money for your next computer, and this is the money uh, to pay your bills, uh, the, the insurance bill and your kids' school tuition, and, and so on. And that helps you understand better. As an aside, let's unpack mental accounting, because it's a cognitive bias most of us have. Mental accounting is our tendency to label money and put it in a specific bucket that isn't interchangeable. But our money is interchangeable. One dollar is as useful as another but we still tend to put our money into different mental accounts and use it differently. So you may spend your tax refund more freely by treating yourself, but you'll be way more responsible with your paycheck and use it to pay the bills. That's mental accounting. Now Dan puts this bias to really good use at Capital because he turns mental accounts into physical banking accounts so people can visually keep track of budgeting and calculate the opportunity cost of spending from one category to the next. So our budgets become way more physical and a lot less mental. 
And then on top of that, uh, there are things that help you get more motivated. Uh, so there are some things that are just not that motivating, like long-term saving or paying off debt and so on. And we have all kinds of things that increase the motivation. Uh, we show you progress. Uh, there's a really beautiful integration with if this, then that. So you can, for example, I, I put a bit more money into our uh, summer vacation uh, every time my kids email me. So every time the kids email me, a bit more money moves into that. You could do rules that says if you walk 10,000 steps, money will go uh, into your uh, coffee account. I mean, there's all kinds of things to do, uh, which is basically creating uh, lots of opportunities to motivate ourselves. And when you think about money, there's really kind of a couple of decisions. Uh, it's about consuming now versus later. That's one decision. And for that, we need to understand the later. We need to visualize the later. We need to think about the later when we need to understand those trade-offs. And if some money goes automatically into later, and then we say, oh, but I want to take it back, that's a better process than saying everything is in the now and I have to move money into the later. And the second thing is to decide what we want to buy now. And again, here going back to our supermarket example from, from earlier, um, or the food example, the world is trying to derail us. Uh, you go to the supermarket and you have a list in your mind and you have a budget in your mind and then the supermarket has a different goal. Uh, and their goal is not the same as yours and guess what? They control the environment. So they decide what to put at the end of the aisle. And they decide when to put the cookies and what to put next to the cashier. And they're not trying to get you to buy more cucumbers. They're trying to get you to buy the things that tickle your emotions and get you to crave something. That's a much easier job for them. Mm. So, so capital is basically trying to say, tell us what your goals are. We'll help you. And then we'll do the budget in a way that would help you keep those things. We'll help you. I mean, we can't guarantee it, but we'll get you get more in line. Right. So... I guess uh, with the budgeting, then we can weigh opportunity cost. And when we see goals, then it becomes visual. So we that's get right. motivated. So, so That's right. So imagine two cases. Imagine two people. Both of them uh, want to buy a new bicycle at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And it's a relatively expensive electronic bike, and they want to drive their car less and use their bike. And one of them has a mental budget for that or a budget for that. And every time they get a paycheck, $200 go to that account. And the other person doesn't have it. The money is just sitting in checking account. Mm -hmm. And now uh, both of those people go for a drink in the pub and one of their friends says, you know, there's a really amazing new restaurant in town. They charge $400, but it's an amazing meal. And they both look at their bank account to see if they have enough money or not. Uh, which one is likely to be tempted? The one that, that wants the bicycle see that they, they, they don't have that much money in checking account. And they realize that if they want to do that, they have to take money away from their bike. Right? And now that person could say, oh, you know what? I'll delay the buying the bicycle by two months and I'll take $400 away from that and I pay for it. But at least they've done the mental exercise. Now, if that person really wants a bike and they don't care so much about the meal, they will not do it. If they, the meal is better than the bike, they'll do it. And it's fine to do it. I'm not saying people should not go and have amazing meals. 
but it's it's not it's not what people uh, would naturally do. So we need to basically get people to say it's fine. Expensive meal is fine. We just want to make sure that it really fits with your overall objectives. Right. So this is all about opportunity cost. Exactly. So let's talk about opportunity cost because it's the biggest thing we don't consider when we spend our money. Because when we spend our money on one thing, that's money we aren't spending on something else. Money we spend today can't be spent tomorrow. What's the trade-off? There are alternative ways to spending money. And that's surprising to so many people because we don't normally consider those alternatives. So before buying anything, try reframing your spending decision in terms of opportunity cost to see if something is worth it for you. And ask yourself, what are the alternatives to buying this thing? What else could I do with all that money? And what's the trade-off? An opportunity cost is very hard to think about, right? Uh, if, you, if you're going to buy whatever it is, let's say an expensive meal, where's the money coming from? A lot of the modern tools are making it impossible to see opportunity cost. We want to bring opportunity cost into the picture. We're supposed to think about opportunity cost, right? If this expensive meal is better, it's, it's better to delay the bike by two months and buy it, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But we need people to at least make those trade-offs. Right. But because thinking about opportunity cost is so hard, people naturally just don't. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, the fact that everything's automated as well. I mean, I always, I always explain to people, we need to have goals, right? So we, I think people naturally have good intentions because most people, if I ask them, what are your financial goals? They can list off a whole bunch, yep. right? But it's, it's almost like they've got the intention, but you know, they don't put it into practice. So yep. when you automate- and, and it's hard. That's right. That's right. It's so hard to put, to, put, to put goals into practice, right? What are you supposed to do? It's so much work. So we don't, we don't do it. But, but if, if it's a system, and again, going back to electronic, if we had paper money, setting up goals would be very hard. Yeah. You have digital money. Yes, people can abuse us, but we can also create a system that automatically creates goals, move money automatically, helps us track it, helps us think about what, what is better and make better decisions. With, with paper money, it would have been very tough. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's amazing. Okay, I wanna talk a bit about the pandemic because um, a lot has changed in the last few months. Many people have lost their jobs. Some of us are working from home. Some of us have reduced incomes. Our kids are stuck at home with us. So there's a lot of stress and, and financial anxiety going on. Have yeah. our financial habits changed during COVID-19? Are we making better decisions because we have less money? Or is the pandemic just amplifying our already messy money behaviors? You know, what's yeah. going on? Yeah, so first of all, it's, it's, it's terribly sad. Uh, loss of job is real. Um, governments around the world are uh, too slow in reacting. And the people who have money uh, are also extra cautious. So, so lots of... Uh, lots of things have changed. And, and I think the question now is uh, for how long will this change last? And uh, one, uh, one perspective is, is people are spending less, then the economy will open and people would go back to uh, what they were spending uh, before. Uh, but I think there is an opportunity here. And the opportunity is to reflect on the relationship between spending money and joy. 
So, you know, you've been in lockdown for a year, a bit, a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can ask you, how much money two years ago did you spend on going out? And I'm not asking you to, to say it, but I, I could, right? And then I could say, and now that for the last year you haven't, how much have your quality of life changed? Now, it could be that somebody said, you know, I, I moved from $1,000 a month to zero and my life sucks. And then you say to this person, go back and spend lots of money on uh, eating out. And it could be that people would say, you know what? I'm actually enjoying eating at home. Or once a month is sufficient. So when, when we come to spend money, the, the issue is how much joy are we getting from it? And how much is it costing us? Now, if two years ago I, I, I came to you and I say, um, would you mind for three months not going out? and then report to me how much it would change your quality of life, you, you would say no. But now we had this opportunity. We have been in lockdown. We, we don't buy clothes. I mean, lots of things are happening. And I think it's a good time to stop, reflect, and see whether there's a new balance between happiness and spending. And if there is, we need to write it down and we need to create a new budget. You see, the moment COVID is over, the pressures in the economy would want to get us to go back to the old equilibria. Mm-hmm. But maybe we don't want that. Uh, maybe we, and, and by the way, it's not just about money. Maybe there are things we've realized about spending money with friends, uh, maybe uh, spend time with friends, with family, and maybe realize new things about sleep. So, you know, the, the, it's an opportunity to say we had this terrible period absolutely horrific in all kinds of ways. But did we learn anything about the equation of money, time, happiness? And can we somehow make decisions that would stay with us uh, for a long time? I'll, I'll tell you just for me personally, um, I used to spend, uh, I, was, I used to travel about 300 days a year. Uh, that's a lot. The last few months, zero. All of a sudden I'm saying, you know what? Uh, there used to be days when I had a project in, in a slum in Africa and I would just fly over, spend a day, land in the morning, spend two days in this uh, particular slum, learn as much as I could and take a flight back. That was lots of hours. All of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, are there better ways to, to spend my time and to learn the things I had to, I had to learn? So in all kinds of ways, I think it's a really important opportunity to, to reflect what are some of the most important financial decisions we should be making right now? Yeah. So, so first of all, I think uh, um, we see at Capital that people are opening uh, lots of emergency savings. And I think that being diligent about saving is incredibly important. And first of all, it gives us some sense of control in this period where we have so little control over our lives. It gives us some resemblance of control. Here, I'm putting money into savings. I'm putting money into savings. So I think we have to do that. We have to create a rainy day. Uh, none of us know what exactly will happen to the, to the economy and our job and so on. We have to also figure out what we can cut on spending. And I think we all need two plans. Uh, we need a plan for now to say, let me cut spending right now in the following things. Uh, but we also need to have a plan just in case things get worse. You know, you can say, okay, if my income is get cut by more than 20%, what will I do? <laughs> Rather than wait for that to happen, we should, we should plan. So I think savings, 
reduce spending now in the plan for later is, is important. Also, there are all kinds of things to, all kinds of things to trim. In the US, uh, lots of people have storage units, right? So you had all this stuff that you accumulated over a long time, you didn't have enough space at home, you buy, you rent space outside, uh, maybe it's time to, to let go uh, those. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, um, there, there is going to be, there is unemployment now and there'll be more unemployment and uh, brushing up on skills. And the kind of, imagine a few scenarios. Scenario one is the whole company closes. And scenario two, um, there are layoffs and some people are let go and some people are not. Improving our human capital is incredibly important, right? So um, this is, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough in the, in the next phase of looking for a job. And we all need to kind of figure out what we need to brush, uh, to brush on, improve, and so on, to be relevant to the, to the workplace. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I feel like I'm always in school. But <laughs> okay, one last question. The stock market moves a lot. It's really uncomfortable when we see our retirement savings take a plunge. And I get a lot of email from readers who want my advice on timing the market. They want to buy the dip. And yes. I tell them, I, I don't know the dip. I'm not clairvoyant. So it's, it's a struggle to explain this. But um, should people even be looking at their portfolios right now? No, no. Uh, there was a study by Fidelity a few years ago. And they found that the people who did the best long-term investing are people who died. Right? Because they did not do anything in their uh, portfolio. And the reality is what happened is if you're trying to time the market, you know, you can't be smarter than everybody else. It just doesn't work. So my, my sense is the best strategy for, for most people. So in the stock market in general, some generalization, uh, there are people who are experts. And the people who are experts should go ahead and time the market and do what they want. In the team. Then there are people like me who basically say, I'm, I'm just an average Joe. I don't know anything more than other people. I don't have a unique perspective. And for me, it's kind of, uh, I want some money in cash in, in case something bad happens and the rest of it, I have no idea. I'll put it in the stock market and I will not watch because watching is just painful. Why, why do I want this pain, right? I'm not going to make any decision. And then there's the middle category. So we said the ignorant people, right? The people who recognize that they don't have any unique value or, or insights into the market and we should do nothing and we shouldn't watch. Then there are the experts, right? Some really amazing people, George Soros kind of, uh, people who, who know a lot and they should go ahead and, and do everything. And then there's a second category. And the second category is the people who think that they know, but they don't really know. And those are the dangerous people, right? Those are dangerous people because they feel that they know and they try to time the market and they do trade trading and they do all kinds of things. Those people really belong in the don't do anything category. They just don't. They just don't see it. So I would say for most of us, if, if you ask me what's the best asset class to invest in right now, stock, bond, real estate, blah, blah, I would say human capital. Uh, the, the, the most uh, assets that yields revenue for any of us, for any of us, normal people, right? Uh, it's us. It's, it's when uh, we're going to get more value out of our own skill and intelligence and knowledge and so on than, than dividends from the stock market. 
And uh, I, th I think we need to invest in that asset. It's, it's a time to go back and invest in our ability to be productive in the, in the workplace rather than speculate about timing the market. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll, we'll leave it there. I just want to thank you. You're amazing. Uh, your, oh. your optimism is incredible, and I appreciate your time today. And um, I look forward, to, look forward to seeing what you do in the future because um, I, I really could use a bigger house. So, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank Have you. a great evening. Thank you very much. You too. And now I would love to hear from you. I'm super curious. Are you into behavioral economics as much as I am? Or were there some other insights you got from this interview? I want to hear about it in the comments. Now, as always, the best conversations always happen over at squawkbox.com. So head over there and leave a comment right now. And if you're not already, please subscribe to my email list and become a Squawk Fox Insider. You'll get my free budget bundle and priority access to all my stuff once a week in your inbox. Thank you so much for tuning into Squawk Fox TV and the Cash and Carry podcast. And I will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.